Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then. 
right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. And then when I got in the classroom with the students, they blew my mind too, because these cadets know that they, when they graduate, they will be, most of them, 21 years old, deployed somewhere in the world and responsible for perhaps as many as 40 lives. Think about what you were like at 21 years old, or, you know, I think about what I was like at 21 years old. I was barely responsible for my own life, you know, yeah. and, the, and, the, and the pressure that these kids have on them to go out and not just lead, but also keep safe. All of these other humans is massive. And they took learning empathy as a critical component of that because they said, look, we know that when we get out there, those 40 people are going to come from 40 different walks of life. There are going to be some people who have a, a, a high school education or perhaps even a GED. Um, we're going to have people who have gone through four-year uh, schools and, uh, and higher ed, and, and they're there. We're going to have people who have come to us from a whole host of different places. And if we don't know how to perspective take and to see the world from their shoes, we're going to have a hard time connecting and leading. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Michael, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually heard about your story uh, on our, our mutual friend Jonathan Fields podcast. And I think as I was telling you the first time that we attempted to do this, uh, you told this story about Ganesh being a remover of obstacles. And I went home and I asked my mom for a Ganesh. And she says, what the hell? In all these time, you've never been religious. And I was like, that's because you never explained to me the significance of this. And literally a week later, I got booked for a speaking gig after a year of you know having a complete dry spell. <laughs> So awesome. Needless to say, I, I was like, okay, who is this guy? I need to find out who he is and, and what his story is. But uh, before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've done with your life? I would say that they really instilled in me a comfort with my particular brand of weird, which is not any different than any other's uh, individual sense of weirdness, right? We're all, you know, kind of unique little snowflakes in our own way. And um, that said, like they never, they never discouraged if I had something that I found interesting or if I found some rabbit hole I wanted to wander down. Uh, it was never deemed weird or out of character or like that's not something you should spend your time doing because I think they understood that that ability to explore whatever it is that that piques your interest and gets you excited is actually really uh, an exciting um, part of growing up and learning. So they, they encouraged mm -hmm. that. And I think I've held on to that still today. Why do you think that uh, you've managed to hold on to it 
And why do you think there are other parents who don't encourage that necessarily, or they write off, you know, bizarre interests? And what were some of those interests? Um, I think I've held on to it because it it has become part of my DNA in some ways that I'm just I'm used to following my intuition and and exploring things, and those things ultimately often lead to something important, whether that's a lesson or a new skill or, uh, frankly, even sometimes learning something I don't like, right? Like I, I have mm-hmm. done, I've made certain attempts at like learning instruments, for example, there are certain instruments that I have you know, made made a run at and then realized, oh, there is, there is no way I'm going to learn how to do this. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pivot into something else and then, and then enjoy whatever it is that I pick up next, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm what are some of the things so like on 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 the instrument tip um you know i I grew up playing piano and and played piano decently um but also uh had tried a couple other instruments um string instruments mostly and just like could not get the coordination of them right and uh and you know was able to still learn that you know you don't you have to put in the work in whatever you choose if you want to get really good at it and so um sports were another thing too. Growing up, I played tons of sports, but, um, if I got tired of a sport and realized that this sport wasn't for me or the sport wasn't something that got me excited, uh, there wasn't any, there were, there weren't any, um, pieces of feedback from my parents that made me feel like I'm, I've failed or that like, this is, you know, like I'm not, ju- I'm just not working hard enough. And I remember clearly, you know, I grew up, my best sport was always basketball. I played basketball in college too, for a little while. And, uh, but in the springtime, uh, historically growing up, I would always play baseball. And then when I got to high school, I played baseball for my freshman year and I was never great at baseball. I was kind of a mediocre player and my dad's favorite sport is baseball. And so at the end of my freshman year, I felt bad and I was like, oh man, I'm going to have to tell my dad, I don't want to play baseball anymore. And I sat down and I like, it was this big thing in my head and I was so worried about, oh dad, I'm going to break his heart, you know? And I sit down and I tell him and he's like, great. What do you want to do instead? And I was like, wait a minute, you're not upset. He goes, no, if you don't like playing it, it's a sport, it's a game. Like you should enjoy it. If you're not having fun, do something that you're having fun with. Uh, and so I ended up doing track and field and had a lot more fun for three years. Yeah. As a creative person, I always wonder, uh, what kinds of advice, uh, people get from their parents about the career paths that they're choosing. So what kinds of things they did tell you career wise, what did they do and, and how did that shape any of your choices? Well, it's, it's funny because I've had this conversation before that neither of them were ever overt about this. But if you look at what my mom has historically done and what my dad has historically done, the Venn diagram, I sit squarely in the middle of, right? So my dad is an entrepreneur, runs a family business. It's, it's not any, anything near a business, the likes of which mine is. Uh, it's actually, it's like a home heating and fuel oil business. It's a very, you know, service oriented business. It's, um, it's, it's very, uh, labor intensive, um, and not entirely glamorous, but it is the the work that he does and he loves doing it. And it's been a family business that my grandfather started and he's now run. And so there's an entrepreneurial angle there, which obviously as an entrepreneur, there's, you know, there's, there's been a, a role model and a permission structure for that to be a part of my 
DNA. And then on my mom's side, uh, she is, uh, has always been in education, has always been, she was a teacher in the beginning of her career. And then through uh, getting um, certifications and master's degrees and other things like that, um, moved up into more of social work and guidance work and administration work inside large school districts. And when you think about that, like, I mean, that is the uh, one of the apex um, roles for empathy to show up in the world, right? Is someone who is really going to take the time to understand kids and their learning needs and their parents and the, what their home lives are like and all of those sorts of things. So when you put both of those things in a blender, I guess you end up building a services business that is focused on how to bring empathy into large organizations. Right. Right. Uh, so, I mean, <clears throat> what actually one, one question about uh, playing sports, I always wonder this about athletes, like what are the things you learn from being an athlete that have applied in your life going forward? Practice. This is the mm-hmm. first one that comes to mind that, that, you know, nobody's good at anything straight away. Mm-hmm. Even the guys who are naturally better at a particular sport, um, still, you know, practice makes them even better, right? So practice is a lesson you learn that like, no matter how good you are, practicing will make you better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you learn how to fail. I think you learn how to lose. Um, cause winning's, winning's the easy one, right? Like everyone, everyone knows winning feels great, but do you know how to be a good loser? Uh-huh. And do you know how to pick yourself up the next day and practice harder or learn from your mistakes or shake your opponent's hand afterwards and say, good game, you know, like those types of things I think really matter and they still play a role in my life today. Um, and then I think the third is even in individualized sports, like when I was doing track and field, um, you know, I didn't run relay races or anything like that. My best sport was actually oddly javelin. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's a very isolated, uh, activity, yeah. But basketball, which is entirely team-based, or track and field, which is very individualized, in in each of those, I think one of the lessons that you get to take away is the interdependence of the team and how uh-huh. you can make sure that um, you know, for basketball it's very obvious, right? You got five folks on the court, they they have to play well together if they're gonna win. But even with uh, at a track meet, you know, how are the different competitors uh, scoring points and do we need to pick up a point here and how do we root on our teammates so that we make sure we have the right support in the crowd, you know, all of that kind of stuff matters. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the basketball one in particular is what intrigued me because uh, I'm a weirdo who doesn't watch sports, but I play sports video games religiously like every day and I play NBA 2K19 and we were at the airport where they happened to have an Xbox set up and we had a three hour layover. Mary, we had a break from like, all right, let's get to this. And so we played the Warriors and the Raptors and I hadn't used the Warriors before. And I just spent the first quarter shooting nothing but threes with Steph Curry. As you might imagine, I got obliterated uh, because of that. I didn't approach it as a team game. And then I, I, my friend said, he said, you shot 25 three pointers in the first quarter. What did you think <laughs> your score was going to be? Uh, yeah. So that that's to me, I think, and that, I feel like this is a dynamic that really carries out into the work that you even do with organizations, right? Like a lot of what you would do in a team sport would probably apply. Absolutely. And, uh, and a lot of the, the lessons that you learn about collaboration and, mm-hmm. um, knowing your role to play, right. And yeah. knowing, um, and, 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 and perfecting your skill set in a particular role so that you can contribute to the team and its success. All that stuff matters. Yeah. 
So before we get into the actual uh, book itself, what has been the journey that has led you to this whole idea of, of you know, working with large organizations to bring empathy into them? How did you get here? So I started the first version of what Sub Rosa is when I was 23 years old. And uh, at that time, it wasn't called Sub Rosa, and we weren't doing exactly what we're doing today. But what we were doing was going inside organizations and offering consulting services and design services to help them reach folks like us, 23-year-olds. You know, basically, brand every brand wants to wants to reach uh, that young, vied after demographic. And we knew just enough to be dangerous to sit in a room and make recommendations and provide solutions, be that digital or social or experiential to help, uh, help make it real. And so we started to do that business and that business grew. And then in 2008, uh, financial crisis hit, um, my partners at the time and I disbanded, uh, everyone kind of wanted to go their separate ways, but I wanted to stick with the business because I believed in what we were doing. I just knew things had to change in order to make it effective. And so I rebooted the team. We shrunk down to a much smaller size and we decided to really kind of get focused on doing strategic work and design work that was built around solving problems. Right. And as the business grew, Maybe two years later, we had kind of gotten our feet back beneath us after the recession, and uh, we said, "Let's let's figure out what makes us different. Let's figure out what we can actually how we differentiate ourselves." And we looked back over all the work that we had done over the years, and we said, "What makes the good work good, and what made the bad work not so good?" And what we kept coming back to was this idea of empathy. That when we took perspective. When we got out of our shoes, when we went out to meet somebody else, when we got into the, the uh, perspective of their world and saw things how they see things, we were able to use that insight in different ways to design solutions that were more effective. And so we said, this is something interesting. Let's build a little methodology around it. And so we started to do that. And I got invited to give a talk down at Princeton University. I went down and gave a talk and came off stage. And the dean of the engineering school came up to me and she said, I really think this was fascinating. And I think it's a topic that we care deeply about here at Princeton. Would you consider creating a curriculum and actually teaching it here at Princeton? And so I said to myself, there's no better way to learn how to understand all aspects of this empathy idea we've been playing with than to have to have our feet to the fire and create a 12 week curriculum where we're going to teach undergrads. So we did that. Mm -hmm. We team taught it across four of us uh, for three semesters. It actually became the number one student ranked class on campus. It was uh, challenging and we learned a lot. And then from there, we took it up to West Point and actually taught it at West Point for a semester. And then, uh, and then once it had been field tested in academia enough, we realized it was probably ready for prime time with our clients and then started to roll it out there. Hmm. So I wonder as somebody who has taught this in an academic institution, what your views are of education, particularly because you happen to have taught at uh, one of the most elite schools in the country. And, you know, it's a, to me, it's, it's also one of those things in the wake of the college admission scandal. I wonder how you think about these things. Hmm. So I think that the students we had at Princeton were among some of the brightest and confident learners we've ever had. Um, I think that they, they really understood, uh, what the value of their education was going to provide them in the long term. 
The shadow side of that that I saw at Princeton specifically was that a lot of these students also were rapidly, perhaps even unnecessarily so, um, uh, put in a put in a vertical right that like if i'm uh if i'm studying psychology i was like in a psychology bubble pretty quickly into my yeah. time at princeton and so these these students didn't get the benefit of breath that i think some other places might afford you because they were so oriented on what am I going to do with this? How am I going to take this and graduate and make something successful of my life? Because the pressures on these students getting into Princeton basically is just the pressure cooker for now. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? Because you got into a good school. You don't have any excuses. You got to, you got to be, make it successful. Right. And so we could see Mm -hmm. the pressure cooker on a lot of these students from that. What's interesting is to then juxtapose that with what happened at West point. So I went into West point with a lot of, uh, on uh, sort of preconceived notions of what I thought we might find, right? I thought this was not going to be a place for empathy. I didn't think this was going to be a place that um, was up for this soft science that we that that we have studied and, and built out. And I got there, and I was proven wrong almost instantaneously. Uh, I think that the the institution really exhibited top to bottom, and I'm talking about like the superintendent, who's a three star general and uh, and a career military guy, had a philosophy on empathy where he said, look, we're, we're governed by civilians. Like Congress tell us where to go and what to do. If we can't take perspective of other people outside of the military, if we can't understand why decisions are being made and what we need to do and what we don't need to do and where to push back and where not to push back, then we're just blindly following orders and putting our lives on the line for what? Because we need empathy. Empathy is a critical skill in any leadership role. And then when I got in the classroom with the students, they blew my mind too. Because these cadets know that they, when they graduate, they will be, most of them, 21 years old, deployed somewhere in the world, and responsible for perhaps as many as 40 lives. Think about what you were like at 21 years old. Or, you know, I think about what I was like at 21 years old. I was barely responsible for my own life, you know, yeah. and the, and the, and the pressure that these kids have on them to go out and not just lead, but also keep safe. All of these other humans is massive. And they took learning empathy as a critical component of that because they said, look, we know that when we get out there, those 40 people are going to come from 40 different walks of life. There are going to be some people who have a, a, a high school education or perhaps even a GED. Um, we're going to have people who have gone through four-year uh, schools and, uh, and higher ed, and, and they're there. We're going to have people who have come to us from a whole host of different places. And if we don't know how to perspective take and to see the world from their shoes, we're going to have a hard time connecting and leading. And so I just found that so fascinating that if you juxtapose those two academic environments, the the yeah. diversity of of both where both of them came to empathy from was so unique. Yeah. What did you find that uh, students in college uh, found to be challenging? Because when I think about like I'm a Berkeley undergrad, right? And I think that when I was at Berkeley, my perspective on empathy probably was practically non-existent. Like I, I can honestly think that I, I if I look back at it, I could say, oh. I felt entitled to a certain salary, a certain job, a a certain company, specifically because I had this degree from this so-called elite university. And then I realized, you know, when I got into the real world that I didn't know a damn thing. And so I I wonder, uh, 
you know, what that plays out like in, in, a, in an Ivy League environment? Like, what are they unaware of uh, or where do they lack self-awareness when it comes to this? I would say, you know, empathy as a tool is something that is superficially hard to see the benefit of. And so one of the things that I think was difficult for students in both of those settings, because both of those settings are uh, really rigorous academic settings, right? How how am I going to be graded on empathy? How am I gonna? How am I gonna know this is working, right? And you know, mm-hmm. when we were with the Princeton students, one of the one of the first questions we got first class was, "What are the steps we need to take in this course in order to ensure an A?" Because, <laughs> like, I swear to God, because it's 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 not it's not a question you're not allowed to ask, right? So if you tell them that 50% of your grade is weighted on the midterm and 20% is on the final project and the other 30% are making sure you do your readings and turn in your journals and all that other stuff, well, then they know how mm-hmm. to work the system. Like I, I got to, if I want to, you know, if I want a shot at an A, I've got to nail the midterm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, they wanted the formula. And when we explain how our curriculum works and what we're going to be doing, and uh, and say that, you know, one of the things you might have to learn how to do to get an A is to learn how to fail. You know, their heads explode. But that's ultimately <laughs> what, what we were trying. It's what we were trying to do with empathy was get them comfortable yeah. with unknowns and get them comfortable with their unconscious bias and get uh-huh. them comfortable with all of these things that are going to in the in the real world hold them back from being able to take perspective. Yeah. So I want to come back to that idea of unconscious bias, and I think this actually makes a perfect way to uh, transition into the book itself. So one of the things you actually said is honing your ability to view a situation from a perspective other than your own is one of the first things you must do to gain a stronger sense of empathy. What are the unconscious biases that get in the way of that happening? I know that I probably have them. I'm guessing you probably still have them, even though you teach this stuff. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, everything that has led you to this very point can be a, uh, you know, a, a, a kite or an anchor for using empathy, right? You know, your, your upbringing, your, mm-hmm. uh, diversity or lack thereof, your, yeah. um, you know, y- your gender, all of these things are, if you are aware of them and you're aware of how those influence your decision, you know, I am, I am, a, a white man in the business world. My, my, uh, white privilege is like is is something i'm aware of when we sit in rooms and talk about diversity and inclusion strategies and if i'm talking about it from my you know seat in the room uh i'm doing a disservice to the conversation what i need to be doing is asking great questions in those circumstances Uh because i've not experienced the kind of diversity uh challenges that other people have and so you know i think that what what we need to do is recognize what role we're what role we're in and how that role is informed by uh, our life and our choices we've made and 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 things that we haven't chosen like our gender or our um, you know our our uh, sexual orientation or, or things like that and how are we making sure that all of those things are um, consciously in the forefront of our minds as we are asking yeah. questions and making decisions for other people. Mm. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's get into what you call the seven faces of empathy. Can you uh, tell us what they are and give us an overview of each one? 
Yeah, sure. So in order to help people get more comfortable with the idea of uh, of practicing empathy, we wanted to give people different archetypes that they could use to sort of try on different sets of behaviors, right? Because empathy is about eliciting understanding. And if we're going to do that, we want people to get comfortable doing it in different ways. Now, everyone, many people have taken some type of personality assessment, whether that's like a Myers-Briggs test or a DISC or Strengths Finders or you know, whatever it might be. You've taken something that has told you you are a this and this person is a that and that's how we get around in our in our in our work this is different than that so what we've done is made seven different archetypes and we tell people we want you to be all seven we don't want you to be one uh and and what will likely be the case is that some of them when i go through them you will hear as strengths for yourself and you'll say yeah that's me i show up that way i'm very comfortable acting that way and inevitably there will be a couple that you hear and you'll say to yourself wow i don't really often see the world that way and that's a great place to start you now know where your strengths are right play to those strengths make sure they mm -hmm. play a role in your work because that's that's how you'll help get understanding of others faster um mm -hmm. but then also with an awareness for your weaknesses, you learn how to start to uh, improve them through practice, through through awareness of, uh, of them. You'll start to see the chinks in those armor in that armor a bit more. So the seven are in no particular order. The the sage sage's ability is to be present, right? To really signal to someone else that you are here for them and that you are here to listen and that you're here to not be on your phone, not be drifting off in your own thoughts, but to really be present with someone and to value the wisdom that's being shared in that moment, right? That engenders a sense of trust. When people feel like you're there, they're willing to tell you more. They're willing, you're, you're going to understand them better because they know you're really invested in that. The convener is a host. They know how to hold space. They know how to create the environment that people feel comfortable. They know that if we're going to have a personal conversation today at work, maybe you and I should take a walk. Maybe it shouldn't happen in the conference room. Right. Like they, they're aware of set and setting and how that influences the ability for people to share with each other. The seekers daring, they're confident, they're unafraid, they take risks, they pivot. They know what it feels like to go up to the edge of a decision that makes them uncomfortable. They know what it feels like to help other people do that and then get past it, right? To walk through to the other side of the threshold. Mm -hmm. The alchemist is a is a prototyper. They're an experimenter. They learn through the act of failure. And some people are terrified by the, by failure. Others, like the alchemist, um, really enjoy that because that's where they learn. They learn in the in the failure and the and the analysis of the failure, so that they don't make that mistake again. The confidant is a great listener. They know how to listen and genuinely hear what you're saying. They're not listening and planning what they want to say. You know, they, that that type of active listening plays a big role in their life. The inquirer, great question asker knows how to really kind of ask the question that unlocks a deeper, more sort of buried truth about something. And lastly, the cultivator is a big picture person. They know the, they know where we're going. They know the thing on the horizon. They know how to pull that inspiration into the now and use that to motivate people to help them understand the circumstances of today better and to sort of understand priority in terms of how to get to that point on the horizon. Yeah. So those are the seven. And I would uh -huh. wager of those, you've probably heard a couple that you're like, yeah, that's totally me. Yeah. Right. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Precisely. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, as an interviewer, obviously, Confidant came to mind as well as, uh, I think, Inquirer. You know, that was, those were the two yep. that immediately struck me. What I wondered was, I also kind of, as I was hearing you say those, started thinking, wait, I kind of you know, waver back and forth between all of them. 
you know, depending on the context of what it is that I'm working on. And so what I wonder is, is how we take that and how we apply it to a real life situation. Let's just for the, for the sake of, of, you know, something simple, maybe it's writing a blog post or me producing the podcast. Um, how would I take yep. this concept and apply it to my work in a way that, uh, is beneficial to my audience? So one of the ways is to use it as a check and balance. So let's say you're writing a blog post. Um, you could look at that blog post and say, have I thought about the right questions to ask myself or the reader, right? Mm -hmm. Have I, have I thought about all the readers? Have I thought about what their questions are, right? Am I, am I addressing, am I writing this for them or am I writing this for me? You know, uh, what type of experimentation, what type of, you know, in the, in the alchemist sense of it, you know, is this, is this blog post, uh, pushing the idea of experimentation in a way? Should it, does it need to, was there an experiment I did in the past that informed this, mm -hmm. right? The, the convener, like, where is this going to go? Where are people going to encounter this? Are they going to read this at home? Do I want them to read it when they're at work? Should I send this out today? Should I send this out tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. so it's at the top of their inbox? Like, what is the set and setting for this content? And yeah. should it sit on my blog? Should it sit on HuffPo? You know, like mm -hmm. all of them can basically be a, 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 a decoder ring for what you're doing to kind of say, is this, is this being comprehensive? So let me see if I, I get this right, just through kind of an example. So I was thinking about the fact that, you know, you have ads on the show every now and then, and usually we're telling people to go to a URL, but it just occurred to me that most people aren't in front of a computer. They're usually listening on their phone or in their car. Whereas if we switch that to a text message, because of the fact that, you know, we're like, oh, where you're listening, you're more likely to be able to respond to a text. Is that kind of an example of this? Yeah, that could very, that's a, that's a perfect example. Great. And that's, I think, <laughs> that one of the things that, that happens. Was worth Price of admission yeah. right there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting too, because what, what happens a lot of the time is what's what we default to the, to the norm or the mean, right. And then we end up kind of just doing what we've always done. And mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many rooms I've sat in where people have said, well, let's just do it this way because we know how our consumer thinks. Yeah. They think about this sort of thing like X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I'll ask, have you asked them? <laughs> no, but you know, we've done, we've done our consumer research. We know our consumer. Great. But did you ask them about this in particular? Yeah. No. Okay. Well, maybe we should. And uh -huh. maybe we'll find out that you're a hundred percent right. But maybe we'll also find out that you're not right. Maybe you'll find out that you're right 50% of the time. And that actually there's a new consumer or there's a consumer you're not necessarily reaching today, but want to reach in the future that doesn't think that way. Right. Yeah. So that type of inquiry is critical. You can't, you can't solve every problem by closing the door and saying, we've got enough smart people in here. We'll figure it out. Sometimes you've got to go uh -huh. outside of the room. Yeah. Well, that, which makes me you know, wonder, what do you find it is that gets in the way uh, other than, you know, people putting themselves in other people's shoes and cognitive biases, what gets in the way of somebody being empathetic? Oh, I mean, the most, most common thing is that people don't want to do the work. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Like you mean, you know, like it, you mean that means I have to have 15 minutes of conversation. You mean that means I have to maybe have a hard conversation or that means I have to change my behavior in order to make this thing happen the right way. Um, uh -huh. You know, people, people, if it's hard, most people don't want to do it. Uh, we've got a, we've got a, a organization we've worked with who their leadership team is uh, 
in the next couple of years, most of them will be retiring. And so they told us at one point, don't give us any big ideas. We're not going to do them because it's too much work and we're fading out. Like we're, we're going to be gone in three years, save that for the next person who's in this seat. And that's heartbreaking to hear because there are employees in that organization who want to see change and want to uh, observe innovation take place. And we know it's not going to happen because Uh these leaders have decided that they want to sunset their careers in in an easier way. And it's unfortunate, but it's also kind of the norm for some organizations. Yeah, that's really sad. It, what's funny because as you were saying that, I remember we were we I went on air and I actually said we're having some challenges converting our advertisers. If you have feedback, can you let us know? One person actually, you know, went to the feedback form and sent it to me, and I looked at his feedback and I was like, yeah, he's telling me everything that's actually true. Uh, but the copywriter who we work with, she said, why don't you actually get on uh, Skype calls and talk to listeners? So I actually talked to like fifteen different listeners, and it was pretty mm. eye opening. And I thought, yeah, this is incredibly time consuming, but completely worth it if it means I can change the experience. Exactly. Yeah. The the it, yeah, it might have been more time than you would have loved to have spent or could have spent elsewhere, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it had a seismic impact on the way you think about the business. Yeah. So. One thing that you also mentioned, you you make this distinction between the emotional self and the inspired self, and you describe the emotional self as, you know, connects us to our personal need and inner voice, giving us a means to achieve greater understanding and self-knowledge. And this self help this self helps us understand our biases, our fears, and our self-imposed limitations and constrictions. And then you said the inspired self is the spark that ignites the inherent desire to make, to do, and to solve. We engage with this self when we establish goals or intentions we want to pursue and then take the steps to act upon them. So what role do the emotional self and the inspired self play in this concept of uh, applied empathy? So we to take a half step back yeah. before answering that. So we've 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 made seven we we've mapped out seven selves, right? And and so those two which are important too sit inside the context of 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 another five, right? Mm-hmm. And so um those two in particular Help us zero in on different ways or, or senses of awareness that we may or may not have about our current state of being. So the emotional self, how are our emotions governing consciously or unconsciously the way we're going around through life, right? Some people are not aware that they are high strung and stressed out all the time, but everyone else around them says, man, that person is stressed out. And you ask that person, how do you feel? And they'll say, I'm okay. Because they they mm-hmm. they are not even aware that that behavior that they're that like, that they're putting out in the world seems stressful because it's the norm for them, right? Or some people, on the other hand, have emotions that they are very acutely aware of, but have a hard time changing. So I'll give you an example. I was with two hundred people from a nonprofit a couple months ago, and I was running a workshop with them around the whole self, all seven of these selves, and I said to everyone, "Okay." I want you to think about the most common emotion you feel when you come to work every day. And everyone thinks about it for a minute. And I said, okay, you got it in your mind. Okay, now close your eyes. Raise your hand if that's a negative emotion. If that's an emotion you don't want to feel the most. And 90% of the room raised their hand. And I said, <laughs> and I said, keep your hands up and now open your eyes. And they looked around and they realized, oh my God, I'm not alone. 
Uh-huh. And it shifted the organization in that one moment because people then realized this is not a me problem. This is an us problem. And if we all don't feel great coming to work every day, then there's something we have to change. There's a, there's a common enemy we can, we can look at and try to solve a problem for. And it shifted the behavior in that organization almost overnight. Right. So that's, that's a quick example on emotional, right? That like you mm-hmm. can really tap into that. And once you understand it, it might be a motivator for change, right? On the inspirational yeah. self, on the, on the other hand, that's really thinking about what gets you out of bed in the morning? What are you excited about? Are you doing that professionally? Is it your side hustle? Should your side hustle be your main hustle? What are the skills that are going to be required in order for you to stay inspired? If you're not inspired, when's the last time you felt inspired? Right? I was, I was with a, a medical team a little while ago and I asked them that question. And someone said, honestly, and this is a doctor, this is like a mid-career doctor who's probably been practicing for over 20 years. And he said, honestly, the last time I felt really inspired, I was probably in grade school. And I was like, wow, do you remember what you were doing? He said, yeah, I was like, it was in recess. And I just remember like that, like unbridled joy I had just like running around in, a, in the back of the school for 45 minutes. And I said, you haven't felt that way since then? And he said, no, I've since then I've been on a track to be a doctor. And I was like, wow, have you ever thought of it that way before? No. I hadn't. What can you do to get inspired? He goes, I'm going to the park tonight. I'm going to Central Park and I'm going to walk around. I'm going to watch other people run around and I'm going to try to reconnect to that. Even if it means like I'm still going to go to the hospital in the morning and be a doctor, that's fine. But like I've lost touch with that and I want to regain it. Right. And what, a, what, a, what an amazing gift to, to, for him to realize that about himself and then, then to be able to go act upon it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've been talking about this in the context of uh, organizations. What I wondered, you know, just as, as we're kind of going through this conversation, what came up for me is, well, how does this apply in the context of our everyday lives, which I'm guessing it probably does on an even bigger scale because, you know, with our family members, parents, because I, I was thinking about this, it, what comes to mind, particularly because you and I connected through Jonathan Fields with Jonathan had asked me a bit about, you know, growing up in the Indian culture and choosing to go pursue this really weird career path. And it took me a really long time to be empathetic towards my parents' perspective until I realized that, wait a minute, you guys were in a situation where life was pretty damn binary. It was either security or poverty. There was nothing in between. Hence the reason you passed on the narrative that you did to us. And I don't, you know, and because of that, we got our work ethic. And there were a lot of things that I I actually realized that, yeah, of course, that's the advice you're going to give to us. You're not going to tell us, go pursue some crazy dream no matter what. So that makes me wonder, how do you bring this into your day-to-day life with friends, family, and other people that you're interacting with in a non-professional setting? So I don't differentiate it a ton because yeah. the we don't – when you walk into an office, do you say, now I'm an office worker? And when you walk into the coffee shop, do you say, now I'm a coffee drinker, uh-huh. right? Like we're, we're, we're just people, right? And we're, and we're, and we're living our lives. And so, um, everything that is in this approach, every exercise, methodology, framework, way of being or showing up for people is just as applicable at home as it is at the workplace because we are the same, we are different versions of the same self all day long. Yeah. Right. So what's interesting, though, is that there are these like uh, subsets, these little like tribes that we operate in. So, yeah, you might be like 
a huge coffee fan and you, you know, you, you can taste the difference between an Ethiopian coffee or a Sumatran coffee, right? Like, great. That's like a, a nerdy little fiefdom that you live inside of that you enjoy and that you celebrate and you trade notes on with other people who love that too. And we all have those types of things, right? Mm-hmm. But if every time we hung out, all you ever talked to me about was coffee, we probably <laughs> wouldn't talk a lot. Right. You know, so you've got to be more than that. And so Mm -hmm. that's, that's, I think where empathy really starts to play a role is like, you kind of know, you know who you are enough to be who you are, but you also know that in certain settings, people need other versions of you to show up too. Uh huh. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're being inauthentic. It just means you're showing different sides of yourself. I sometimes describe it like a like a like a 12-sided die or something like that. Like and and who knows how many sides there are because everyone has, you know, everyone's unique, but like mm-hmm. some like it doesn't change the fact that it's a die. But sometimes mm-hmm. you want to show number 3 and sometimes you want to show number 7, but both are numbers on the same die, right? It's all you, but you have facets and you have ways of showing up in the world that are empathic to the situation. If we were doing this podcast and you were from the Wall Street Journal, I would be showing up talking about very different aspects of myself and my business because that's Mm -hmm. what your listeners would care about. Yeah. So what I wondered as I was hearing you say that is, you know, how do you have empathy when you're in a situation where you actually disagree with the person that you are trying to be empathetic towards? So I mean, I think any one of us has probably had this situation with our parents where like, you're driving us crazy with this idea and we fundamentally disagree or even somebody that we're close to or you know, somebody we, we disagree with on something. So how do you find common ground when you have disagreement or, or how do you have empathy when it doesn't seem like you can find common ground? Mm-hmm. Well, empathy is neutral. And so empathy is just about understanding. Do, are you making an effort to understand, sticking with the example you gave, your parents' point of view? or Because yeah. you can understand it and disagree with it, right? That's still... Yeah. That's still having empathy, right? You, I have empathy for you, mom. I understand that. Yes, I sh- you you would like it that I was home by eleven every night, but I would really like to come home at midnight because I think that I'm old enough to make those choices for myself now. Right, and <laughs> and um, and that is that is the practice of empathy. Is the is the are you are you reasonably making an effort to understand why your mom wants you home at 11? Well, I want you home at 11 because it's dark out and it's not safe and you got to get a good night's sleep and you got to get to school in the morning because I want you to get better grades and I want you to get into a good school and I want you to, you know, like, and, 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 right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just channeled your mom, I think, a little bit there. Um, but, but, um, but at the same time, like, is she making an effort to understand well, he's getting older and he wants some more autonomy and this is an easy give. And, you know, he's probably not going to stay out till midnight every night. And if I give him this, maybe it'll actually make him feel like he's in a little more empowered in his choices. And if he has that empowerment, maybe he's going to make more confident choices about his career. Like you could see the other side of it too, yeah. but most people don't go down those rabbit holes. Right. And so you end up stuck in these, well, this is what I want. No, this is what I want. And this, and, and you kind of stalemate. So I think what empathy does a good job of is if you practice it and you really understand its value, its value is in staying in a neutral state while observing someone else's point of view so that it can inform how your actions impact them or not. Yeah. Well, right when you said stalemate, I couldn't, you know, like 
I mean, I, this is not even a political thing. Like, I just, I'm curious, do you think that, you know, if you were to basically send copies of your book to Congress, we would reach conclusions faster in terms of policy? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that the, the way the, the U S political system operates right now is it's, it's governed by forces far uh, more influential than the folks that walk in and out of Congress every day. It's governed by lobbyists. It's governed by corporations. It's governed by dollars. And, um, and we don't have people who are actually operating in by and large, this is, this is too broad of a generalization to be true uniformly, but, but I don't think we have enough people who are genuinely operating for the betterment of our society, as Mm -hmm. opposed to the betterment of their pocketbooks and their bank accounts and uh and and the interests that continue to keep them uh in a seat of power in this world so you know i would love i would love to say that that this book landing there could help um in fact we've actually had conversations in years prior with um uh the state department to talk about how might empathy play a role in foreign service and when uh-huh. uh diplomats are deployed overseas how could empathy play a role in helping them understand the local climate and how america's perceived there and how to work with locals to help affect change right like that's that's really interesting stuff it won't surprise you that that did not that conversation did not happen <laughs> I'm with sorry to hear administration. That. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but during the Obama administration, we, we did have those kinds of conversations. Yeah. That's why I kind of wondered, I I just couldn't help but think about politics. And I I feel like every day on the news, I'm just like, Oh, this is like more of the stalemate. It's, you know, the craziest shit show reality TV show I've ever seen in my life. But, uh, yeah, I, I I couldn't help but wonder. I thought, Oh, it seems like politics would be the, the most interesting place. It's funny that you brought up the, many of these people aren't acting out of the interest of the betterment of society because we had Andrew Yang here who was a presidential candidate. And that was yep. one of the things that like really struck me as I was talking to him and, and as I've watched sort of this, you know, media circus for 2020 unfold is how many of these people are thinking about the well-being of the citizens? Is this all coming from a place of empathy or do you just want to get elected? Because is half the time I, I feel like they're so disconnected from the problems that they're trying to solve. A hundred percent. And Andrew Yang is a perfect example of that because I actually really like a lot of what he has to say. I've, I spoke at a conference that he spoke at, like we were back to back. So we got a chance to have a little sidebar backstage. Um, and I went to a a, a rally of his not too long ago as well, just to hear him talk and to kind of hear his point of view. And I will tell you, like, you're right to say he has the betterment of society in embedded in a lot of what his policies are, even to a fault because like universal basic income is probably one of the most unelectable points of view to have, like, Uh but it's, it's not the wrong one to have. Um, in fact, there's a lot of merit to it in my opinion. And I've, and I've read parts of his book that go into more detail on it than the sound bites you hear when he's on CNN, but at the same time, you know, that's such a hot button topic that, you know, he's going to lose voters on both sides who are a little closer to the middle because that just sounds crazy radical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, we're, we're going down a real rabbit hole here. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but, uh, well, no, I, I think it's a relevant rabbit hole too, which, you know, kind of want to bring us full circle. So I, you know, something that I, has been on my mind and I don't know why this is on my mind. Uh, I just finished reading David Brooks' new book, The Second Mountain, which uh, mm-hmm. there's something, something, and I just asked somebody this question earlier this morning. So I want to ask you because uh, I think it's relevant to the conversation that we're having. He talks about the various decisions in our lives. And one of the things he says is that who you marry is the most important decision you'll ever make. 
And so I'm, I'm, you know, it kind of got me thinking about, okay, what are the most important decisions in our lives? And it's something that I've really been wondering about. So I (laughs) figured I've got people in the podcast. What do you think are the most important decisions in life? Who you don't marry. Yeah. (laughs) I'm with you on that. Um, Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, Following, following your intuition, I think is, is, uh, is a hard thing for a lot of people. I think following the, the, the thing that sits above your shoulders is often easier because your brain is what gets you readily rewarded in the world, but your intuition is, is riskier sometimes, right? But your intuition is really a, a, a thing to, to zero in on and to, and to trust and to follow. Um, another thing that comes to mind in thinking about this kind of a question is, uh, the, the, phrase the map is not the territory right Mm -hmm. and so i think a lot of people look for the map and they look at and when you look at a map you see here are the nice clean borders and here's how it all looks and 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 this is exactly the, the the shape of the land and uh when you walk it it's very different and you don't see those little borders that divide state to state. And that that mountain or that big stream that runs between here and here is going to make it really hard to get from point A to point B. But on the map, it looks like it's a little tiny thing. But then when you're in the territory, you learn the differences, right? And I think that part of what happens in life is we tend to map and not territory. Um, that's a it's a it's an opportunity to start start to think differently about the the the, the realness of our decisions in the world. Mm. So I have two last questions for you. Uh, yeah. What's one book that changed your life other than your own? The first one that came to mind is Siddhartha. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, it's, I think, I think it's probably the book I've probably read the most. I don't really reread books very often. But I think that the lessons in there about continual growth and change and pursuit of knowledge and understanding the self are, um, are great ones to hold on to. Yeah. So that actually, unfortunately, raises another question <laughs> that I didn't think I was going to ask. Uh, <laughs> were you raised with any particular religious or spiritual beliefs? And if so, how have those informed your life as an adult? Um, I was born and raised in quotes as a Catholic in that I was um, baptized and, you know, got communion and all of those things, but my parents weren't terribly religious. It was just living in North Jersey and being an Italian family. You kind of do those things, right? It's kind of like, uh, it's like the social graces you go through. Um, But I think what that did exposure to Catholicism at that age did expose me to spirituality and spirituality has always been a part of my life and my family's life. Um, and, And I think we do, um, have a a sort of an open acceptance in my household growing up um, of other religions and understanding that all religions have something to learn from. And so, yeah, I think I've always had spirituality as a part of my life, um, but religion has never been like a a particular dogma has not, not governed my behavior. Hmm. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is to make somebody or something unmistakable? Bravery. Hmm. Because I think everything is going to make you feel 
any any big decision is going to make you feel like you're taking a risk and bravery is the um the game changer that pushes you into that unmistakable state of willing to take a risk and to see what happens on the other side amazing uh well i can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing your story and your insights with uh our listeners where can people find out more about you uh your work the book and everything that you're up to uh thanks for having me first of all it was great great conversation really enjoyed it um everything that you need to know is uh, appliedempathy.com. Um, you know, you can find more about speaking engagements, social media, books, email blasts, podcasts, all that jazz. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.